Hi, I'm Sean. And I'm Thomas. And this is the Sean and Thomas Show. Hey guys, Sean here, co-founder of DevScale here in Chicago. Welcome to Scale Talk, episode number five, a series where Thomas and I talk with tech leaders here in Chicago about what they've built and how they've got to where they are today. On today's show, we're super excited to talk with John Barnes. John is a Chicago tech veteran who actually got to start out as a mainframe developer and has since found himself in some leadership roles at companies like Salesforce, Model Metrics, and he's currently the CTO of a company called Infutor, which is a really cool product that helps out with consumer identity management. We get super geeky on this call and we dive into a lot of the details into Infutor's tech processes, release management, and tech team structure. So Thomas and I had a lot of fun talking with John about all of the details and the nitty gritty, so I hope you all enjoy. Why don't you start out just by telling us a little bit about what you're up to and, and what you're all about? Yeah, John Barnes, a CTO, product leader. I've been involved in the tech space for about 25 years now. So I've kind of seen the a variety, a wide variety of technologies, starting kind of from mainframe to um, client server to web and, and now serverless and, and kind of big data. So it's been kind of a fun Fun trajectory for me as well with a, a pretty long pit stop in mobile too. So Nice. I'm not sure I know what a mainframe looks like. <laughs> yeah, it started out in the insurance days doing COBOL um, programming. And I think a lot of them still run on this. So if, if you could say it, I guess I was doing cool mainframe work in terms of I was doing EDI, so helping automate healthcare claims and uh, working for Mutual of Omaha. So at the time, all of the claims coming in were paper. So it was helping automate that process so that claims could be passed, uh, processed more quickly. So, Where'd you get your start in your career? Did you go right into to mainframe Cobalt development or where'd you start out? Yeah, I actually started out doing mainframe Cobalt development. So I, um, like in college, I started out as a film major. Um, I, was, I was an art major for a little while and then came across the basic programming class that I kind of fell in love with towards the end of my general studies and kind of graduated in a, in a mini recession at the end of 93 and was kind of lucky enough to have a couple job offers. And so I chose, um, you know, chose Mutual of Omaha. It seemed like the best opportunity and ended up on, at the time, you know, they were hiring a big class of new developers and you didn't really know where you're going to end up. And so I ended up on a lot of their development at the time, probably still is, is on COBOL. So it's, they do a lot of big batch, batch uh, processing. So I stayed there for about two years before I moved to a, a new role and was doing some visual age, um, doing small talk and C++. So. How did you go from being in more of the arts to more of the technical? Because that's a drastic jump uh, that I don't think most people take. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. So I think, you know, similar to probably a lot of people, I you know, had a had a, a computer at home and, and kind of played around hacking with, you know, doing some basic programming kind of early on. I think I, I liked it, but I wasn't like that was my whole life. Um, I was a mixture of a couple things, but always was very involved in the arts. Both of my, my father was an art teacher. My mother was an artist, so had some talent in the family and enjoyed art. So I started out more in that trajectory. I think what I realized is that most of the people um, that I was going to class with and even talking to the teachers, that there weren't a lot of good career opportunities. And so I shifted, shifted my focus a little bit away from that, just realizing, especially as a film major, most of the people were graduating, just working for like a local TV station, radio station. And um, it didn't sound very appealing to me. 
And so I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And then you ended up kind of falling in love with that basic programming class and kind of seemed like a natural fit. I think what I realized as I got into technology is it's a mixture of um, kind of both art and science. So I think it's good to be you know, technical and be able to solve problems, but sometimes you have to be a little bit artistic in how you apply technology to solve a problem. So I think it actually you know, worked out well. At the time, obviously doing mainframe programming, there wasn't you know, there's no such thing as UI, UX, but I think obviously, as you guys know, things have changed a lot in the design front. So I think you know, that background has kind of helped me that I'm not just a pure hardcore coder. Do you find yourself now really liking to, to work on UI, UX stuff just because of that art, that art background and, and brain that you have? <laughs> I think a, a little bit. I think um, you know, my role now, and I think my last several years has been broad enough that I'm not in that area too much, but yeah, I definitely really enjoy working with our, you know, our designers or design teams kind of on those elements. So I think it's really important. You know, design thinking has made a, a big difference in how technology is applied and was involved with some of those projects at Salesforce, which was helpful too, just to see how you know, design thinking can help solve problems. And yeah, the UI, UX is really important to help make a, a product useful and, and interesting to, to, to help solve a business problem. Tell us a little bit about your career trajectory then post-Mutual of Omaha. Sure. Yeah, so I went through a few different roles. I think I was always looking for something you know, more interesting to do and kind of moving to newer technology. Um, I left Omaha and went to work for a small company at the time in Georgia called Intercall. It was a conference calling company and was actually a really interesting opportunity because it was owned by Cam Lanier, who was um, a Southerner that owned that as well as ITC Holding Company and ITC Delta Comnology and... Um, um, kind of Powertel was a, a phone company at the time that T-Mobile ended up buying So in Mindspring, an early ISP. So he, it was all this really interesting technology in a fairly small town in Georgia. So it was a great chance to work with Java, do some interesting web development, um, did a lot of C++ and kind of moved into more of an architecture role. So I really enjoyed kind of growing my tech chops there and taking on bigger projects. And then I moved to Chicago and worked for Broadvision Software in their consulting team. So it was really an interesting time to be a part of that big .com um, craze. Was actually on their advanced architecture team, and got to work on some really large web scale projects, so helping companies like Hallmark and Schneider Electric, um, Maytag .com, um, kind of be the, the overall architect and help put together you know, very very large scale websites that were um, you know, doing either e commerce or then eventually more portals. So that kind of moved me more in that direction and got me more connected with the you know, the Silicon Valley community. Spent a lot of time in the Bay Area working with clients. Um, and then I went to a startup after that uh, that was based in the Bay Area called Agenda Software that was kind of fun because it was founded by um, out of some technology that came out of Stanford out of a research project after the Space Shuttle Challenger crashed, where basically they were looking at, is there a better way to do if-then logic? And so they came up with this concept called agent-based theory that's basically belief, desire, intent agents. And so the thought is you're separating out logic and design um, at, at design time, and it happens at runtime. So the idea is that you can make a better choice at runtime than you can at design time when you're, when you're coding things. And so this technology was used in air traffic control and some other scientific applications, but wasn't really applied to the business community. And the ex-CEO of Informix, after he sold that to IBM, kind of bought the, bought the company and the rights to the technology and tried to take it to the, the business market. And so that was an interesting run. I ran um, the local kind of Chicago consulting office and worked with some clients here locally. The Chicago Housing Authority was actually using it as part of their plan for transformation as they were closing down some of their bigger um, bigger housing projects, moving people to private housing or Section 8 and helping coordinate all the services around that. But it was a difficult time to start a company. That was uh, 2002. And so I was there from 02 to 05. 
and um, you had a good run, but left before they ran out of funding and then joined uh, Model Metrics, which was really probably kind of one of the highlights of my career. So I was the, the eighth employee of that company and help, helped it grow to its eventual acquisition by Salesforce. When you were working at Broadvision, were you a developer or were you more in the leadership role? I was a I was a developer and kind of a tech lead architect. So working with like my first project was interesting. It was working with uh, Capgemini, I think, for um, Carlson24k.com. So they're basically creating a giant website, and there were seventy consultants from Capgemini, and I was the tech lead on the project. and And I asked my boss, I was like, "How how am I supposed to be an expert at this?" And because I'd gone through a two week boot camp. Um, with Broadvision, I knew more about the software than they did. So I was training them on how to use the software to build this giant um, e-commerce travel portal. So we were basically building kind of a version of Orbitz where we were tied into Sabre to do online travel booking. We were using Sharper Image for shopping and then a whole point system kind of tied back into Carlson's um, websites. So essentially, I was, it was a mix of you know some coding, some um, architecture review. Sometimes I was a tech lead, so it depend on the on the project. You know, it was a kind of a magical time back in the dot com days of how you know the internet was going to change the world and remove friction. And so it was definitely a fun. And I worked with some really smart people. I met a lot of great people and worked with some cool companies during that period. So, what was that transition like going from developer to leader? Because I would imagine at some point in your career there was a, a pretty stark difference in in uh, job roles. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, yeah, I think I started that a little bit with the architecture work I did at, um, at Intercall. Uh, probably happened more at Broadvision. I think probably the first one was that, that first project where I was, I, w- I was like the one consultant from the vendor, but I was in, you know, kind of thrust in this leadership role and felt way out over my skis. So I think um, at first I was really kind of thrown by that, but I realized I understood you know, the technology, I, I knew I was a pretty good C++ developer. I knew how to handle some of the hard problems we're having. We were working with Orbix and threading and you know, some interesting tech challenges of how do you work with the middleware at the time, you know, doing middleware development was pretty tough. So it was the middleware was written in C++ and the front end was server-side JavaScript. And so I think I just kind of felt my way through that and was able to, um, you know, kind of play that player coach role a little bit on that project. Had a really nice... Um, letter from the partner at Capgemini to one of the senior leaders at Broadvision saying how helpful I was on the project and how instrumental I was in its success, which you know, completely surprised me. I didn't even know he'd really noticed me that much, but that really helped kind of launch my career. And I think it gave me the chance to kind of start playing that tech lead role on some other projects that I worked on with at Broadvision. Tell us about the transition between uh, Broadvision and Model Metrics. From Broadvision, I went to Agena Software for a while. So I was in Broadvision from to kind of 99 through 02. And Broadvision, I was, I think it was about 600 people when I joined. It had grown to about 4,000 and then they started having layoffs with the dot-com phase and it was back back down to about the same size. I left there just because yeah, I didn't want to work for a company that wasn't growing anymore. And it was, I was just kind of traveling and working on long-term projects. And so that wasn't, wasn't much fun. And some of the people I'd worked with at Broadvision had gone to a genus. So I had kind of a warm intro there. So it was a chance to work on newer technology and, um, it was, it was kind of fun to go to a smaller company at the time. I think Agenis was about 80 people. So, you know, going from, I've kind of gone to progressively smaller companies, it seems like. And so, um, yeah, that was the, and I really enjoyed that. But again, that company started, um, was was kind of heading heading south a little bit and, you know, wanted to work for more of a local company. And that's kind of what prompted the introduction to Adam Kaplan, who was the CEO of Model Metrics. So some of my Friends that were abroad vision that Agenis had gone to Salesforce early on, and they introduced me to Adam. He was running a small consulting company here in Chicago. 
How far along was Model Metrics when you joined? Was it just at the beginning, and were you were one of the founding members? I think it was about two, it was a, it was about two years old. So I think at the time I joined, it was probably a couple hundred k in revenue, but fairly small. And did you join as CTO? I joined. My title originally was VP of Technology, so basically came in to help build a technology practice. It was basically Adam, and then a mixture of people that wore a couple different hats, where they were, you know, delivering projects, selling. Um, you know, kind of everybody was wearing different hats. Where did the product and the team end um, when you left Model Metrics? Did it grow significantly? What was kind of like the, the growth there? Yeah, so from the time I joined in 2005 until we got acquired by Salesforce in 2011, we grew to about 250 people. So we yeah, grew pretty significantly and, and you know, revenue had grown quite a bit. We grew on average probably 80 to 100% a year, kind of year over year. So Those are some good numbers. <laughs> so it was nice, yeah. And we grew or- organically. So the, yeah, the company was something that Adam started and bootstrapped himself. Uh, we did take on some angel investment yeah, towards the end. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the guys that became on our board and then Salesforce was, a, was an investor as well. But for the most part, was just organically funded. So. That's really neat. And while you were at Model Metrics, you also spent some time abroad. That wasn't all here in Chicago. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. So, so at, um, at Model Metrics, my kind of trajectory you know, helped build up a technology practice, grew to about 80 probably developers and architects. And then I moved into more of a product role and was actually, we formalized the product team and started building, taking some of what we did on the consulting side, um, built out a mobile framework. We were early on with um, the iPhone. So we had early access to the iPhone SDK and we were on the app store and it launched. And so started building out products um, and build out a product team. And as part of that transition, this is right before the acquisition, I actually um, raised my hand and, and took my family over to India to to kind of build an offshore team in India to help kind of extend our capability into that market. I think one thing we saw from both the product as well as the services side is we were having a hard time competing with other firms that had a big offshore presence. We had a small team in India that was connected with our one of our board members, but we didn't, they weren't our employees. And so our CEO is really looking for somebody to go over there and kind of take our brand and our culture and help build a, a local presence. So I yeah, took my family, had two kids, uh, that my daughters were six and eight and, and spent a year going over there to kind of help, you know, build the office and build a team, which changed a little bit because Salesforce actually acquired us shortly after, um, I got to India. So we had all the paperwork ready to, um, create Model Metrics India. Um, we were going to be working out of a, a that consulting firm's office. We had a, sp- a space that we were going to rent and had to kind of transition that after Salesforce acquired us because they had some different covenants in terms of you couldn't be in another company's office. So I had to actually you know, seek out office space, um, convert the team that we had to Salesforce employees, help build the team. So it was a chance to almost be CEO a little bit in, a, in another country, which was quite a quite an interesting experience. So I had a, <laughs> a fun year over there building the team and kind of navigating all of that. So. so all of a sudden you were building the Salesforce India team. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So Salesforce had a presence in Hyderabad because they'd acquired DimDim. Um, I was in Bangalore and I think what they realized is there was a lot more tech talent in um, in Bangalore than Hyderabad. Bangalore is, I would say, kind of akin to Silicon Valley. And so yeah, they, they really liked what I was doing in the, in the team I was able to, to build there. And so it kind of became the Salesforce Bangalore office as well. So How big was the team that you built uh, over in India? Because you started with zero, essentially, right? Yeah, I had, I think, six um, contractors that we converted to employees and then um, built the team to about uh, 40 or 45 people, I think, by the time I left. So we weren't, we weren't trying to scale it and compete with the big Indian um, outsourcers, but essentially had... Um, 
kind of three development scrum teams, a QA team. And then we also actually built out a design team as well. So I hired really good design leads who were doing uh, UI UX over there as well. So you know, the, the goal was to create kind of a self-contained you know, team that could take on projects. And I think that was part of what attracted the team to us is a lot of the Indian companies, they were just doing pieces of a project and didn't really understand the full scope of it. So they liked being more involved in kind of a full project. And so it kind of built out that that um, methodology where a team could take on a full chunk of work and actually do, build out a full product or do a full client engagement over there. Moving your whole family to India seems like a huge undertaking and and, and bit of a change for, for having two kids too. What was the, the justification in terms of like the business side that, that you needed to be there and you needed to, to move there for a year or two? On the business side, I think we were, especially on the consulting side of our business, we were seeing a lot of um, need to just be able to compete rate-wise with clients or with other, I think we had grown quite a bit. So starting out, we were just kind of competing with locals, smaller SIs. We'd gotten big enough that we were competing more with with Capgemini, with Accenture, with PwC. And so they had very big offshore teams. So us coming in with US rates, we just weren't very competitive. And so we needed to have the capability to... um, you know, offer that, you know, for our clients. And so that was kind of the impetus. At that point, I'd moved out of the consulting side of the business. I was more on the product side and the product side was going fairly well. We'd launched about 18 different products and we were on the app store. We did a lot of stuff with AWS, a lot of stuff with Adobe. And so it was kind of a chance for me just to take on a new challenge. I'd always wanted to do something international as well as my wife. And so that's kind of why we raised our hand to go do that. What was that like using the, uh, the iPhone SDK, like as one of the first, first people to get your hands on it? It was definitely really rough. I think, um, yeah, there are a lot of <laughs> a lot of challenges. I got very good with Objective C. I think that's probably where I got a lot deeper back into coding. Um, it was interesting. I worked with a, a great guy, Chris Bledsoe at Apple, who was very helpful. He was on their kind of developer relations evangelism team. So Chris was great in kind of helping answer questions, um, you know, things like that. But it was it was really fun to be one of those very first adopters of the kit. You know, a very unique moment in time to you'll be able to build a product and be there you know, the day the, the App Store launched. I remember I remember it clearly because I didn't have a July 4th that year and in 2008 because <laughs> I think the App Store launched right after that. So we were working through all those weekends, oh, kind of getting no. everything done. The, the hardest parts were getting your certificate and getting everything signed and compiled and through the, through the whole eval process. So you guys had an app when the App Store launched? We did. That's yeah. amazing. You're one of, what was it, like 200 apps or something like that? Yeah, it was a pretty small number. I forget. We were... Um, We'd built a, this application. We were ahead of our time. It was called Expense to Go. So it allowed you to take a picture of your, your receipt, build an expense report, upload it. Um, it was interesting from a technology, technology standpoint, too, because it was a nice integration of Salesforce had launched uh, kind of force.com and sites, which was kind of their early version of communities. Um, so you could build websites on Salesforce. Um, we used Amazon EC2 and some other early EC2 and S3 to kind of do some image processing. And then we use Mechanical Turk to actually do the OCR of the receipts because this is the iPhone 1, which didn't have that great of a camera. So there was a lot of challenges trying to figure out how could we take a good enough picture and then have the whole workflow go through Mechanical Turk to turn that receipt into something. And now, obviously, Expensify and Concur and everybody does this. But at the time, we kind of bended people's minds and they're they're unsure what this was. But we were in the Wall Street Journal and some of the early Apple ads is... um, on the iPhone when they kind of said, hey, this is open for business now. And 
The fun thing is it was more popular for the first year than the uh, Salesforce um, app, which also launched with the App Store. So it was kind of fun that's, that that we were ahead great. of Salesforce for, for a year in terms of ratings and downloads. What was, um, and you keep on mentioning all these really cool things that Amazon has. And I know that you're really involved with Amazon. Um, so we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, but one of the things um, that we looked up and saw about you was that when you built your team in India, um, that you had a really low attrition rate uh, and that you built a really solid team that was very well functioning. One of the hardest things, I think, uh, especially in today's culture, is how fast developers move from one job to the next and everything. So yeah. talk to us a little bit more about how you managed to just create a team that functions so well and you didn't keep on losing developers faster than you can hire. <laughs> That's a good question. I think you know, in India, especially, it was interesting when I moved there. It reminded me of kind of stepping back into the dot-com days where um, people were used to hopping jobs every year. They would make 40% you know, more at their next job. And so people had no loyalty at all. So I think um, initially when I first went there, the challenge of recruiting was hard because model metrics didn't have a name. That got a lot easier once Salesforce had acquired us. But again, at the time, this was um, 2011 when I was there. I was there kind of from 11 to 12. Salesforce still wasn't that well known internationally, so it's not the same brand it is today. So I think you know, it took a little while just to, to recruit people. That was hard. I think the what people really enjoyed, I think one, um, I think the biggest thing actually just that I was there because I think most people just hire a leader in India or wherever it might be and try to have them build a team. They don't have that same kind of insight into the culture and the company. So I think the fact that I was there made a big difference. Um, you know, I was there in the office every day. And, and it, was a, it was a hard period for me because I was essentially running that office, building that team, still had responsibilities for the U.S. And with the time zone difference, I was working you know, really long hours, kind of doing both jobs, essentially. But I think the biggest, uh, the biggest thing that probably made a difference is just you know, realizing um, you know, they're, that they're people, treating them as a part of the team. In my mind, they were no different than you know, the developers in the U.S. And I think they really liked being a part of the full process of a project where they were used to just having work thrown over the fence and they're just doing a piece and they don't really understand how it applied to a bigger picture or a client's need or whatever product they're building. So I think having them involved in more of a full lifecycle project made them a lot more excited about uh, what they're doing and, and, and kind of made them buy into um, what we were doing. I think kind of, it had a special feel. I think we're kind of building this new thing. It was a slightly different model than, you know, we were competing against like Wipro and Infosys and, and the scale of those companies was, was mind-boggling, where I think sometimes literally they're hiring 30,000 developers a year, you know, p- pushing them through onboarding, training them how to, to develop, you know, teaching them soft skills. So it's, it's a very different world there. So I think the fact that you know, they're coming on, joining to them what seemed like a smaller team and actually being a, far, a part of a full process um, you know, made them a lot loyal. And, and I don't think the whole time I was there and even the year or two after that we lost anybody. So it was a fairly you know, solid team with you know, very low attrition, especially for that area. Tell us a little bit more about um, the AWS portion and all of the Amazon. I love the fact that you use Mechanical Turk as your OCR, <laughs> just because that was a hidden, that's just such a hidden hack that so many people weren't aware of, yeah. like up until like three or four years okay. ago. Yeah, this is like, oh, wait, we're doing <laughs> So Yeah. Um, yeah, AWS has been fun for me because I think we, like I was um, a fairly early adopter. I think we discovered AWS kind of in the 07, 08 timeframe. Um, you know, just is interesting technology and it, it fit really well with some of the use cases we were building either products or client needs around with, um, with Salesforce. And 
that was one of the the first. Yeah, I would say um, that product um, when we built out the the full um, kind of card capture thing. The the bigger product that we worked on was called Card Lasso, where it was basically taking a picture of a business card and having that flow directly into Salesforce or or into a V card into Outlook. I found Amazon was a really good fit for that because it picked up where Salesforce left off. Uh, the timing worked out well for us from a business standpoint because Salesforce and Amazon announced a partnership and didn't have a really good showcase. So they showcased us at Dreamforce. We were on, on in the keynote. So that, that helped a lot. But it was, it was fun because I think the first time, so we went out to kind of build a partnership with Amazon because we thought, hey, we've got a good thing going with Salesforce. Let's do something similar with Amazon. They didn't have a partner program at the time. I think they only had five or 10 sales guys at AWS. And when we went out there, they were just in the PacMed building, which is like this hospital building in, in, um, in Seattle. And when you pulled up, there was no branding. You didn't even know this is Amazon. It just said physician office here. And so they were very small, very undercover, you know, kind of the skunk works thing happening within Amazon. So got to know those guys who were really early on, a lot of the product managers and sales guys and really helped kind of grow up with them. So then about a year after that, they formalized a partner program. We were one of their very first partners, um, you know, got trained and, and that really helped kind of grow a whole new business unit within within model metrics. But I think we we built a really successful company where we were building products on both Salesforce as well as Amazon. And then we had a nice consulting business helping customers implement Salesforce and use that. But we we're also helping a lot of large companies move to Amazon that were, it was, it was fairly early days for AWS. So um, a lot of companies were interested in the cloud, but they didn't really know how to get started. How do I move workloads to the cloud? So helping large insurance companies and, and bigger companies actually either migrate workloads to the cloud or kind of build net new um, applications on the cloud. So we were very early on with some of their basic early services like S3 and EC2, um, but then also, um, as they as they develop new things and kind of went further, we were actually kind of working closely with them on some of their new services and new products. And um, you also trying to help kind of build the awareness in the Chicago tech community. So we started the AWS user group to just to start helping people understand more about that. And then there were a lot of cities that Amazon couldn't travel to um, because of their sales tax nexus issues with the retail side of the business. So we were able to help them in, in markets where they couldn't travel to, including you know, Illinois is one, but at the time California was as well. So we actually started the AWS user group in San Francisco, as well as Minneapolis and a few other cities. And that helped us build awareness, um, help them kind of build their brand and help kind of bring in business to model metrics. So it was a nice win-win. So. so you were involved with a lot of the early teams, it sounds like, at some pretty pretty core technologies to the internet now. So like you knew the leaders at Apple during the app launch and you knew the leaders at Amazon with web services. Were you ever tempted to go work with them and work on those, those internet changing technologies? It's a good question. Um, I, I certainly have, um, you know, certainly was interested in that. I think I got that itch scratched a little bit by going to Salesforce and being a part of, of, you know, their, you know, their company in a, in a bigger way. But um I think for me, yeah, there was never, I think what I was doing, especially at Model Metrics at the time, was kind of so fun and was really enjoying it. Um, there was never a, a strong reason to leave. And then after we got acquired by Salesforce, I enjoyed the roles that I had there. So I think certainly thought about it, but the timing and opportunity never quite made sense for me. So. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about your role then at Salesforce, because I think you were you were in charge of of their mobile platform, right? On the marketing cloud side. So I, I had a couple different roles there. So you know, I stayed CTO of, of um, Model Metrics after we got acquired. So the way our acquisition worked, they kept us as a separate business unit for about a year and then gradually migrated us in. 
Um, my first role there was a lot of what we did um, was more on the consulting side. We were integrated to their, their consulting side of the house. Our products that we built um, did go to the app store, but we also kind of used some of those products. They were sold more as a services product. And so spent some time running the worldwide mobile practice. So helping customers like Home Depot and GE building kind of custom either field sales or field um field service apps, especially on the iPad. So at the time, that was kind of the big focus. We built some really interesting technology where we were able to sync. Um, that was kind of one of our core um, things that we built in our mobile framework was the ability to sync data, large amounts of data locally into SQLite um, on the iPhone or iPad. And then we also built an Android version. So if you were a sales rep for GE or Home Depot, for example, like for Home Depot, we built an offline sales app for their roofing, siding, and windows guys. So when they came to your house to quote out, you know, putting on new siding or windows, they could quote that out, build all that. It didn't matter if they had internet connectivity, all that data was stored locally, and then it would sync back to Salesforce when they had connectivity. So that was kind of a key key piece of our technology. So I ran, you know, that business for a couple of years and then wanted to get back to more of a product role. So Salesforce had created the marketing cloud, was a fairly new business unit within Salesforce that was really the, a mixture of seven acquisitions. So it was Exact Target, um, Buddy Media, Radiant 6, a bunch of companies that kind of came together. And they were looking for a mobile leader to come in and really help them um, transition away from just a pure email business to more of a mobile marketing business. So it was fun for me. I hadn't had a lot of experience on the marketing side of things. So I was taking a lot of the mobile expertise I had building custom mobile apps, but actually running those product lines. And so ran the, the kind of the marketing, uh, the mobile side of, of the, the marketing cloud side, which was a lot of fun. So it was a mixture of um, SMS uh, was one, one of the larger products, but also mobile analytics and mobile push. And the business was growing you know, fairly rapidly. I think of the product lines, my slowest growing one was growing about 80% year over year. And the fastest growing one was about 240% uh, year over year. So it was kind of fun to, and I would say career-wise, that was a transition because at Model Metrics, you know, I was the eighth employee and I kind of helped to build my whole team. So that was fun, but it was a very different muscle memory than coming into um, a new a company that had been acquired, had some process issues, was was trying to figure out how to fit into the Salesforce ecosystem. And you come in in a leadership role to help kind of manage a team and, and change things. It's a very different um, you know, kind of leadership challenge than just kind of building a team from scratch. So I learned a lot. How many people did you have on your team there at Salesforce then? I was a, as a product leader, I only had, I had a fairly small team, um, you know, that we had a separate kind of product tech organization. So I had about, I think eight or 10 people on the product side. So I had product owners in Indianapolis as well as in um, Denver, Seattle, um, London and Sydney. Okay. And then we had scrum teams were in mainly Indianapolis, but also had a couple of scrum teams in Fredericton, Canada. So probably about 80 developers kind of focused on, on my product line. So, What was the big difference for you then between being CTO in terms of maybe just what you're actually doing, being CTO of a small company to all of a sudden being in charge of all these product lines? I think for me, the, the biggest challenge, you know, especially I think being kind of both, you know, at Model Metrics, I kind of wore both of those hats. I think the challenge for me at at Salesforce in that product leadership role was being a product leader, but keeping my hands off that tech steering wheel, so to speak. So, um, you know, as a product leader, it's more of you're telling the teams what to do and you have to trust them on the how. Um, it was hard for me to let go of that. I think, um, you know, knowing technology well, you know, just trusting the engineering teams to you know, implement that functionality on that, and for the most part, the exact target platform. Um, without without me dictating how they do things. And as we'd hit performance challenges, it was hard to stay away from those conversations and kind of stay in my product box and focus more on the, the market and the customers and roadmap. 
when you first started out at your first ever job with a mutual of Omaha. Yep. Is that right? <laughs> yep. Um, and you were a developer there essentially. Yeah. What did, did you ever see yourself being a CTO and like being in such a leadership position in so many different like firms or was that always your goal? That's a good question. I honestly didn't. I think, um, I think one of my early, um, managers, not in a mutual, but at ConAgra, you kind of predicted that for me, but I just truly didn't see that. I think I was at the time just trying to figure out life and, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd gotten married and started my first job and graduated from college all within a few weeks of each other. So I was just trying to figure out, <laughs> figure just out to life keep it and, interesting, and pay yeah. the bills. Exactly. So, so I think, you know, looking back, it is surprising, you know, the trajectory that I was on, I think, yeah, certainly interesting. I think what I always tried to do is just open doors, um, you know, kind of meet new people. I haven't tried to predict exactly where I'm trying to go, but um, you know, help connect the dots, introduce people, you know, kind of chase interesting technologies. Obviously, I was early on with a lot of a lot of kind of fun things, and it's and it's worked out well for me. So, tell us about then that transition out of Salesforce. What what happened, and what what triggered you to leave, and and how did you end up in in Futur? It's it's a good question. I think part of um, you know, honestly, I was surprised I stayed at Salesforce as long as I did. Like when we got acquired, we always knew we'd probably get acquired, but we never had a strong exit plan. Like we weren't trying to exit. You know, we, we'd always had a lot of the, especially a lot of the big consulting companies were always trying to, to to court us. Uh, but Salesforce, you know, came after us and acquired us, and that was that was definitely a great exit. Um, but I truly didn't know how long I wanted to stay at Salesforce. You know, going to a bigger company like that. Obviously, it was it was enough fun, and I was able to move around some within Salesforce. That I was I stayed for a while. I think what what um, appealed to me is I had a recruiter reach out to me about the current opportunity that I'm in. Yeah, they were looking for somebody with kind of Valley experience, but lived in Chicago, and I was kind of a unique fit to to do that. What appealed to me is I wanted to get back to something smaller. I think I like although Salesforce is very innovative, it's won a lot of awards. It's still a big company. I think even when I left, it was you're approaching 30,000 people. I think when I joined, it was you know, three or 4,000. Now they're now they're over 50,000. So it's you know, continuing to take over the world. And so I think what I really missed was some of those things I had at Model Metrics was you know, being part of a local leadership team. Um, it's never, it's always a little bit challenging. I think I've, I've seen this both at Agenis and then at, at Salesforce of being the remote employee that it's always hard. You're always traveling to you know, either San Francisco or Indianapolis in those cases. Um, so being on a local leadership team, having that local office vibe at Salesforce, it's a very remote company, um, a remote workforce, you know, similar to IBM, a lot of companies where it depends on the office. So some offices, and I traveled a lot globally, my last couple of roles there were global. So I spent a lot of time in, in Asia and Europe and you know, saw a lot of different Salesforce offices. But for me, I was either you know, working out of my home office or I was on the road. So I kind of missed that office vibe and that, that energy we had at Model Metrics. And so that's what I was looking for. So this this was kind of a nice role that gave me the chance to kind of do all those things as well as, as build something new at Salesforce. It was, even though I was in you know, the top leadership there, so to speak, you know, I was in the top six or 800 people, but it was still, I was kind of middle management in a big company to some extent. So it's nice to, to get back to where I felt like I was making more of a difference. So. Plus now you can tell the developers how to do it, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't double space. Yeah. 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 <laughs> And, and the fun thing is, too, that I'm also running product here as well. So I kind of get a chance to um, kind of be on both sides of the house. And I think I, I learned a lot at, at my transition at Salesforce, because especially with the exact target team, we were bringing them on to the Salesforce agile methodology and how we do agile development, release management. And, you know, it, 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 there are a lot of process challenges because only you know, like just the marketing cloud alone, I was one of kind of six kind of 
swim lane product leaders, but then we had 800 people in tech and product and about 80, 80 or 90 scrum teams. And so there's a lot of, I think what I really learned there, I'm not a process guy, but I learned how important process is to help companies scale. So I was able to take a lot of what we taught, you know, the exact target team as we really integrated them more deeply into the agile methodology and release management um, and bringing that here to Infutor to kind of do some of those same kind of things to help add some process to what we're doing. Yeah. Why don't you tell us about Infutor? What's what's the company do and, and what's your typical customer look like? Our focus is consumer identity management. So we really help brands um, learn more about their leads, really to understand more of should you know should they follow up with someone and kind of help stack rank if somebody comes to your website or a co-reg page, help, help them understand and to be able to square that lead. Or if they have a customer, be able to tell them more about that customer. So essentially, we have um, an ID suite of products that you can you can call our APIs. It's a very API-driven company where you can pass in, like for example, if you're uh, if you have a co-reg page and you have a sweepstakes and you're trying to build a list or launch a new product, um, if you just ask a few questions on a form, people are more likely to fill out that form. Our database actually has information about people to help fill out that identity to know um, we can provide you know the physical mailing address, their phone number, their email address, as well as some demographic information to help understand is this a real person. Or did somebody just fill out your form with Mickey Mouse, one, two, three, Main Street? So we can help and provide a score. So we can help your sales reps score leads when when um, people are coming to your website. And then we can help people understand more about their customers. Because if you're a typical brand, if someone hasn't you know, bought a product from you in a couple of years, they could have gotten married, they could have moved. You might not know a lot about that person beyond their email address or, or the fact that they bought a green sweater from you two years ago. So we can help um, companies know more about their customers as well. So I guess the typical use case then for Thomas and I in our shoes, it would be if we, let's say we get an email through our chat bot function on our site um, and we, it, we're not sure if they're real or not, we could theoretically pass this to you and through your API mm-hmm. and then you could spit back, hey, this is totally fake. Yeah, yep. Yeah, essentially we can tell you, does that name match that address or match that phone number and provide a score you know, from zero to 100, how likely is this a real person? Is there, are they worth following up with? And we can also provide, you know, essentially the way we look at the world is really identities, attributes, and intelligence. And to us, an identity is a name, an email address, a phone number. Um, and then attributes are um, you know, cars, houses, um, demographic information about you. And then intelligence is, are you likely in market to buy a car? Are you likely in market to buy a house? Um, you know, we're, we're kind of a unique company in the fact that we we're a private equity owned company and have a, a deep history of data. So we're able to start modeling out life stage analysis of kind of how people have changed uh, throughout the years. So it's essentially our focus has shifted primarily from um, selling initially selling more bulk data to large data providers or credit agencies, all the companies you've probably heard of to going more direct to brands with APIs to help just answer questions about their customers or um, you know, help them understand, is this somebody I should, do business with, or is this a real person? You know, helping eliminate a lot of the bots is, is, is definitely a key use case that we can help companies with. So you're the reason that when I fill out bogus information in the sweepstakes, I never get a call back and I've never yet won one of those cards. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. Yeah. It depends on you know, which, yeah, you know, which company's running that sweepstakes, I guess. That's so. cool. Tell us a little bit about uh, the processes from um, just like you, you, mentioned in the previous question about, you know, the release process and management and agile, um, how that has changed from when you were at Salesforce to where you are now and what's kind of like the most important lesson you've learned. I think, um, 
you know, going back to like the model metrics days this is the first time I was kind of in a product leadership role where I think it was fun and we did, we did really well, but we were building kind of net new products from the ground up, which I think are very different muscles than having an existing product line that you have to prioritize. Should I enhance this? Should I launch a new product? What should I do? So I think what I, what I really learned in the process, you know, I helped kind of bring here as well is, is really around release management of having an overall roadmap of where do you want to go? But then the challenge is how do you take this high level roadmap of I want to do X, Y, and Z, and these are the kind of the big milestones throughout a year or the next two or three years. And how do I turn that into what a developer is going to work on a day, on a day-to-day basis? And so essentially what we do is kind of a series of kind of going from hundred thousand feet kind of down, down lower and lower and lower to the point where it's actually a story, you know, that our developers are working on. So essentially we do, you know, you have the overall roadmap process and then we do what we call a, a three release roadmap where we take that bigger roadmap and um, break that into releases. I think one, one of the things that I brought to you know, this company is we were working more just sprint to sprint. Um, each product line, each team was fairly independent, which was okay, I think, when we're smaller, but it also created all these silos. So even though we're only, when I joined, we were, a company, we were about 65 people and now we're about 125. So we've grown you know, quite a bit in the last two years. But we've kind of gotten to that point where it was hard to have all these silos and we weren't talking across each other. And so we moved towards this idea of, of, a, of a release plan where essentially we just basically arbitrarily said, OK, we're going to release uh, software in a, in a bigger way, especially for the legacy platforms, which didn't have unit tests, didn't have a lot of automated testing every every six weeks. So essentially, we're going to do three sprints and then release, three sprints and release. And what that allowed us to do, especially for our product owners, is to kind of time box and, and kind of break these ideas into smaller, into goals, into epics, and then into stories that they would actually um, develop against. So we do a three-release roadmap where we kind of say, hey, this is what we want to do over the next three releases. Prior to a release starting, literally, we're about a release ahead of that. We do a, a release planning meeting where the product owners get together and say, hey, there's the stack rank list of epics that I want to I want to put into this release. It's a meeting that all the product and tech leaders are part of so they can see, are there any dependencies, any challenges? You know, since we're essentially a data company with APIs and batch processes across our data, we have an interesting um, dependency where sometimes to develop a new product on the API side, we also might need new data on the data side. So we have to communicate, make sure that the data teams are on the same page with the development teams and product teams. And so we get together in this release meeting and go through, hey, these are, at this point, they're just epics and they're t-shirt sized. Um, agree on the stack rank order, see are there any dependencies there, make sure that our IT and infrastructure teams are aware of what we want to do. Do we need to um, you know, do new things, get new hardware, provision a firewall, do something different in Amazon, et cetera. Um, and then it gives then we give the team about six weeks to take those epics and fleshes out, build out stories. Um, and then the team so what, I think one of the key things we do is the product owner stack ranks all those. It's up to the Scrum team to look at that list of epics and draw the line of, okay, Mr. Product Owner, you want to do these eight things. We think we can do the top six. Um, these other two are below the line. If we get lucky, maybe something will move up. And then we, we do the release kickoff. We let the whole, everybody across the, um, all the tech and product know, hey, this is what we're actually doing. Just so they understand the scope of the release beyond just their product line. And then weekly, we have a, a, a call every Friday where it's a release commit report where we look at all those epics and see, is it green? Is it on track? Is it yellow? It means it's off track, but we've got a plan to course correct it. Is it red? Is it something that um, we're worried about and it's going to fall off the rails? We don't have a plan or is it dead? So sometimes we have a little skull that we put in the in the Google sheet to show that something died. And really the, the goal for that is to help everybody know what's going to make it into a release because a release can change. You know, some priorities change. Mm-hmm. It's okay if things die. So 
what I intentionally, you know, part of what I did too is, is formalize the Scrum Master role and hired a couple of formal Scrum Masters. And so they, they track all the teams, all the status. We err to the side of caution. So if they're unsure about the status of something, they're, they'll mark it yellow or red just so we can have that conversation. And then we have the release, the release finishes. We do a release demo to share with um, everybody in tech and product as well as sales and our cap management team. Hey, this is what was in the release. And then we do a version of that for our customers to show this is the new functionality. So that's that's kind of the process that is kind of added some um, framework around everything we're doing. And it's helped everybody get on the same page and just be more aware of what's happening across all the different, because I we're not a huge organization, but I still have about seven different Scrum teams and, and kind of six product owners. So there's still enough to coordinate across that too make sure we keep everybody on the same page. How large are the different teams that you have? Like what, what have you found to be the ideal size from like a product team, scrum team? That's a team? good question. So we, our scrum teams are, um, some of the smaller ones are three people. I would say the larger ones are seven or eight. So it kind of varies. I think one of the things I learned at Salesforce is, is a team has its own dynamic and, and um, they kind of go through that storming, norming, forming process. And so if you want to, increase your focus on a product line or an issue or a customer. It's better to move the whole scrum team versus, Hey, I'm going to steal this dev and move, move her over here. It's better to move. The, you have the team kind of move as a unit because they know each other, they know their strengths. And so depending on what we're doing, yeah, that's kind of the, the size of the team that we've had. Um, what's interesting about, about this company is, is my development team is completely based in Costa Rica. So I have um, my IT and infrastructure team is here um, as well as one of my data scrum teams. Um, my development leader and architect is here, but then all of the development teams um, and QA teams are in Costa Rica. So the approach we have from a team standpoint is we have a product owner here that owns a product line. And then in, in Costa Rica, we have the product manager as well as the tech lead, um, you know, two or three developers, and then a, a QA engineer on that team as well. So they're kind of a self-contained unit. So the, the PM and, and then the scrum master handles two, two scrum teams is you know, two to three scrum teams is kind of the, the model that we've gone with. So. Do you have any developers locally or are they all in Costa Rica? Uh, they're all in Costa Rica, which is kind of an interesting model. So I think that takes some of the complexity around the offshore pro, uh, question where um, you're not trying to move work back and forth. Everybody's there. And the fact they're in the same time zone, it makes it a lot easier as well. So. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. It's the same time zone. I didn't think about that. <laughs> yeah, half half the year it is. Half the year I mentally think of them as in mountain time because they don't do daylight savings time. So, of course. <laughs> so at the most, most they're an hour off. So. Well, Europe's supposed to get rid of daylight savings times too, I think, which yeah, I've heard would that. be pretty exciting. And then Arizona's on its own thing. Uh, so. <laughs> it is. <laughs> That was the weird thing when I was in India is they were 12, 11 and a half hours off. So it's not only the 11, but then there's this half hour. So it was, there's always a, a time zone gyration that I'd have to go through when scheduling a meeting. So tell, tell us a little bit more about the advantages and disadvantages of having a fully remote developer team. This is the first time I've worked in, in this, um, you know, this kind of a setup. I would say ideally there's the advantages of having an on-site team is you're working with them you've hired them you've built you know, built the team i think the downside you know, especially of having a team here in chicago is sometimes tech talent is hard to find you, you you spend more time recruiting um in our case we've had really good luck with costa rica where the talent is very strong even some of the i brought over a couple of leaders from salesforce and they've been surprised that like john these aren't offshore developers these are you know just like really strong good developers and I would agree. So I think we've been fortunate that we found a really solid team there. I think having everything there has is, is been easier in terms of 
in our, in our minds, I think it does, they don't feel like they're in a different office or even a different country. I think one of the big changes I brought was just kind of helping modernize our infrastructure here where I brought in Slack and brought in, you know, just Gmail and Hangouts and, you know, having all the Chromeboxes and all the different meeting rooms here and in Costa Rica, it really feels like they're in the same office. So we've, we've, you know, since we've grown pretty rapidly over the last couple of years, we're headquartered in Oakbrook, but we actually just opened an office in Chicago, um, you know, back in November. And we have our account management team in Florida. We acquired a company in Kansas City. And so it doesn't feel any different that they're in Costa Rica versus being in, you know, down in Kansas City or, you know, Florida or something like that. So I think that that's helped break down those barriers a lot. I think for me personally, one of the things I've done is I've had to, which has been a hardship, is go to Costa Rica frequently mm, yeah. <laughs> um, and spend time with the team just to really get to know them and, and help make sure they're a part of our, our culture. Because I think, you know, this is a unique company in the fact that it was a family run company that's about 12 years old, um, a private equity, growth equity company, you know, bought the company and I was part of the new leadership team to come in and help it scale. So a lot of what I was trying to do is help as we're really changing our culture, adding processes is help kind of provide that you know, to the team there where they had been more in maintenance mode, where a lot of the software we had was just kind of keeping the lights on, not doing anything interesting. Um, so I brought in not only the process, but a, um, a lot of new technology as we've shifted to building out kind of a net new platform in the cloud and kind of doing things completely differently. So it's been, I think, fun for them to go through that transition. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty pretty hard disadvantage to have to go to Costa Rica once in a while. <laughs> it is, especially last week. It was terrible uh, in February. To get would you together. do you like see the sun, do you like have to see the sun over there, <laughs> or can you like opt to see just gray? <laughs> you pretty much even when I've been there, they have really two seasons. They have like what they call now is summer. So it's essentially November, kind of late November through April is their summer, where technically it doesn't really rain much. It's just sunny and nice. And then they have the rainy season which is kind of April or May through November. But even when I've been there in the rainy season, you know, it's kind of like going to Florida in the summer. It might rain in the afternoon or it rains all night. Some, some days they do have pretty heavy rain, but for the most part, it's it's been just pretty nice weather, especially in the morning that it would rain in the afternoon. So so the weather's certainly not bad. What's like the must-do if you visit Costa Rica? Because I haven't been there yet and I've always wanted to go. I think the, the must-do thing for me, you know, I, I actually did on my last trip there was to go to the top of Irizu Volcano. So there are amazing beaches, but I think you can go to beaches in the you know, Caribbean or Florida. So the beaches are great, but it's the fun thing about the country is, yeah, they've got good beaches. They have um, you know good waves on the Pacific side. So if you want to surf, you could do that. They have the rainforest, so you can do zip lining and that kind of stuff. But I think you know, the fact that you can actually be on top of a, a volcano or be next to a live volcano is pretty unique. That's pretty so, cool. Um, you know, one of my previous trips, I went to Arnold, which is a live volcano that you can actually get pretty close to, but it's, it's cordoned off. Um, Arnold hasn't erupted i think since the 50s but you can actually take a car to the very top and there's this really cool lake in the crater that's kind of this translucent green wow. you know with all the minerals and then there's hot springs nearby so you can kind of hang out in these kind of natural hot springs hot tubs that's and, cool and that's and that place the, is in costa rica too it is yeah yeah both of those there's several volcanoes in costa rica those are the two i've been to so it's kind of interesting because when not everybody has a specific release process uh in, in terms of like after three sprints, we're always releasing every six weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you choose to? Why w- did you choose to do like a strict, you know, six week release process versus sometimes, you know, you want to do like a quick release now or like a later release, you know, later? Like what? I think yeah, you know, what we're you know, it's an interesting tech challenge. Yeah, you know, part of the reason I came here was you know, we're a twelve year old company. We have a lot of 
it's more of a .NET SQL Server, you know, kind of infrastructure, which is actually similar to Exact Target. You know, prior to that, I'm more at heart, more of a Java, Unix kind of guy. So not an expert on the on the .NET SQL Server stack. I kind of learned a lot about it, um, you know, through through the Exact Target transition. But I think we're an interesting mix of you know some of our legacy technology is is on that process. Part of the reason I moved us to that is just mentally to help everybody kind of get their heads around what are we doing within this release. There's so many dependencies across um, some of our products where our API is kind of a platform that our batch and our query systems use. And so having everybody lined up helped a lot where we could have certain things like a release ahead of the API, for example. So if we're launching a new product, we might need to get the data in our database first and then you build the API, the release after that and expose it in the in the UI, maybe a release after that if it's something that's you know goes all the way through that. So I think some of it was helping around dependency management. Um, some of it was like one of our legacy platforms, for example, since it was, um, you know, these some of these are legacy applications that didn't have unit testing, automation, DevOps. In a given sprint, when they were releasing every sprint, about six, it took about 60 hours within a sprint to do a release in terms of all the testing, rolling across all the different, you know, data centers across different legs, doing the QA, making sure all the different APIs were live. So. In a given two-week sprint, you know, that team was only doing probably a week and a day of dev. So it was like kind of five or six days of dev and then four days to do a release. And so moving that pain to happening only every six weeks made a lot of sense. Um, it was hard on the, the infrastructure team too because they were doing these releases every two weeks you know, and it was some of it was fairly manual. And they didn't know if a given application was going to release that sprint or not. So some sprints, oh, no, we're going to do this. But no, it's not ready. We'll launch it next time. So their schedule was very, um, very scattered in terms of knowing when to plan their guys to actually install the software. Some of it had to be installed after hours. So it was kind of painful from that perspective. Everything new we're doing, and part of the reason I came here was a chance to really take on more of a big data challenge. And so everything new we're doing is is built out you know all of our data ingestion is with spark and scala um, loading into snowflake is our is our back-end cloud data warehouse and then our new apr infrastructure we're building out is all on serverless technology so we're using um, you know lambda and api gateway and that kind of thing so with that right now we're sticking kind of with that same schedule just to help us um, frame the release mentally almost in in terms of planning but everything there is is set up for continuous integration that's the plan once once that whole that first product goes live, we're going to be on more of a CI uh, approach uh, for the for the cloud stuff, where we have you know good unit tests and automation and deployment scripts, and it's all built into Jenkins, etc. So yeah, it's much more of a modern approach. Yeah, let's let's talk about how big the, the big data is for you guys, because it, it, I mean it seems like you have a ridiculously huge amount of data, because you I mean. Of just reading on your site, you have access to every phone number in North America, all the address changes, all the business address changes, name changes, uh, emails, everything. So yeah. where does it all come from? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question. So, I mean, we, we pull data from a variety. We have over 200 sources of data. So a lot of it is just public source data, whether it's you know census data. Um, a lot of it comes from um, you know, county websites in terms of you know, property data. We get data from kind of vehicle warranty data, vehicle service data, magazine subscriptions, um, data from you know phone carriers directly. Um, a lot of co-registration data from sweepstakes sites or or other web forms. So the challenge we have is one, the volume, and then also two, just is this data we should pay attention to, or is this um, 
is this um, you know, data we should throw away? So we essentially have, I think it's about 95 million um, kind of data points coming into us daily. And so what we have to do is, is looking at that we have um, in our core database, what we call kind of our core identity database, we have 650 million people. And then that's spread across kind of a lot of tables and some fairly wide tables. And then we have kind of all the attribute data kind of layered around that. So our, I mean, it's not huge, huge, but I'd say it's fairly good size, like our core database as we kind of clean, extract that, move that into SQL Server for our API, for example, it's about a, um, I think about a six terabyte database. That's a fairly you know, good size database. Our challenge is more on the ingestion of all this data. How do we clean it? How do we standardize it? And then how do we do matching in terms of figuring out, okay, we got this new email address in, is this a new person? Is this just somebody else's email address or is it a typo? So what we've done is taken a lot of the interesting information that we've built over the years is, as we've done all this in legacy technologies, move that to um, serverless technologies. So I built that out in Lambda and built that out in Scala and being able to very quickly standardize you know, simple things like a, a phone number or an email address, but also doing harder things like name standardization. So we have very large name tables where we can actually standardize somebody's name because that's a key component of matching. Is this Jay Barnes? Is it John Barnes? Is it Jonathan Barnes? Is it Joe Barnes? Should that all be the same person? So standardizing that as well as somebody's address so that we can then match it to an identity and attribute that information correctly. So yeah, those are some of the you know, some of the, the big data challenges we have. I think what's been interesting for us is, is I hired uh, my, my VP of, of data came from US Foods and he was an early user of Snowflake. And Snowflake's a great kind of cloud data warehouse where it really separates out compute from the storage in a very cost-effective way. It works primarily with Amazon, but they also support Azure now. And I think we've really pushed it to the limits as we've been transitioning kind of our core backend database from Oracle to Snowflake as we're building up this new platform where we've actually done joins where we've had over 700 billion rows wow. in a join and being able to handle that in a very wide way to kind of build our new version of our database, which is much cleaner and a little bit more collapsed than what we have in Oracle. So it's been a fun process to you really kind of completely rebuild our platform on a completely new stack while we're keeping what we have running because what we have runs well, but it's just as we take on, if we want to take on a Salesforce or a Facebook or somebody as a client, yeah, we couldn't handle that with the data center and just kind of a .NET stack. That's mm -hmm. where we need um, you know, more of the, the Lambda and serverless architecture and what Snowflake can give us to, to help on that side. Got it. Have you ever, I'm sure you have, have you ever looked up your name in here and see like what, what comes up for you? Like what is all the information that you have on you? It's actually fairly accurate for me. So yeah. I think you know, it, it kind of varies on a, on a sample of one to depend on you know, if it has you know, current information or not. So we're, you know, a lot of our data is used when you apply for a loan or, or buy a car in terms of which of these previous addresses are yours, which, you know, which cars have you owned before. You know, so sometimes we're providing some of that data. Um, I think where we're really useful, especially for a marketer, just helping if you're sending out a campaign, being able to help you know, drive more lift by knowing more about that person and being able to personalize you know, something as simple as being able to you know, tell an email marketer um, you know, someone's gender, for example, or they homeowner might really help change how you market to them, whether you, you're doing it you know, via social or you're going to do it via email or via a mobile application. So you're know, helping personalize the channel or the message is, is I think, one of the main goals. But for, I would say overall, our information is, is very accurate. And I think we feel pretty good about our database. So. What gets you most excited about the future of what InFuture is doing? I think what, what gets me excited is kind of a mixture of kind of both the, the tech and the business challenges. I think one of the reasons I've been 
I've been fairly successful in my career is not only do I love technology and obviously I've been involved in some early things, but but applying that to business uh, business challenges. So I think what what excites me is the opportunity to you know, essentially this feels like a startup, and the fact that mm-hmm. I'm you know, moving us not only just moving us to the cloud, I've migrated a few of our applications, our legacy applications to EC2, and it's running in the cloud. But being able to build a completely new database and architecture and infrastructure on the cloud and doing that in a fairly rapid fashion, you know, while we're keeping kind of the the current business running, and doing it in a very cost effective way. So, so I think when you're dealing with big data, um, you can you can do that with with Hadoop and with clusters, but it can be very expensive to have a long running, you know, whether it's Hadoop or a Spark cluster running. So I think what's been fun for me is using technology in innovative ways. You know, we're a growth equity based company, so we focus. We're, we're profitable and we need to kind of maintain a certain profit margin as we're growing. But being able to do that in a cost-effective way, for example, like when we, when we ingest data, we don't have a giant cluster running 24-7 to handle these 95 million rows. Essentially what we do is we pull in that data, drop it into S3, we have a Lambda trigger, uh, start a Spark job that runs through all of our cleansing routines and our matching routines and then shuts down. And so we're able to process, you know, a couple hundred million rows of data for, you know, five or six dollars. And we're only paying for the S3 storage. So we're not paying for that, you know, cluster running 24-7. So I think I've enjoyed the tech challenge of that, but also enjoyed, um, you know, seeing kind of the business impact that we've had for our customers where, um, you know, we've been the secret sauce for a lot of what they're doing. We've also done a lot more interesting more recently with some of the EDU customers. So Stanford is a big customer of ours where they're actually using our historical data to do um, your research in terms of the impact of different things on people over time. So it's been fun for me to see you know, the power of our data helping um, some different research institutions. We have a lot more that have kind of followed on since that that are starting to use our data for research projects. So it's interesting to see the wide variety of customers of, of how they're using our products and data to solve, you know, whether it's business problems or looking at social change or how you know, things change over time. You know, I think one of the universities is looking at us now to see what did Katrina's impact do to people and their income over time and how did that impact where they move? So I think we have some really interesting historical data. So it's fun to see that as well as the, the other area that's been um, fun for me technically is, is, is our data science practice where we're, we're starting to layer intelligence on top of all this data we have to help better predict what somebody's going to do. So we have you know, feeds from you know, phone companies and other sources to know who's moved in the last 24 hours, who's changed their phone number. But actually being able to predict you know, before somebody moves or before somebody wants to buy a car so that um, you know, we as individuals can have more targeted offers that aren't annoying or um, you're just getting spammed. So hopefully you'll, you'll get less mail and things that are more relevant to you. So hopefully we'll, we'll help make your life better from a marketing perspective. By spending more. <laughs> <laughs> what, um, yeah, you brought up a, just an interesting point that I wanted to dig into a little bit more was... Um, how much you guys pay for hosting and just computer stuff. Okay. Um, you said that you can process 95 something million rows for <laughs> like a $5 bill, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> what's your, what's your monthly hosting bill? Just ballparkish. Um, because we're talking about billions of rows of data and billions of points of data. And I don't sure. think many people have a picture of like how much that, how little or how much that costs to, process and store i mean candidly the biggest part of our amazon bill is for rds and it's really for the legacy you know some of the legacy applications that we've moved there so i think that's the most expensive where um you know is is paying for the rds bill i would say outside of rds um 
probably our S3 and Spark and Lambda. You know, Lambda is is almost free, which is is nice. So I would say, you know, it's a very affordable between Lambda and API Gateway. Um, yeah, that's a very affordable um, stack. We we did do a, an evaluation where we looked at different backend databases. So essentially, you know, the way our architecture looks is we, you know, like I talked about kind of the ingestion side, we ingest that data, we move it into Snowflake, which is, is our cloud data warehouse. And that's kind of our source of truth. Then what we're doing is extracting it out of Snowflake into a JSON record that really is kind of your identity. And we're storing that in, in Aurora MySQL. And so the, the nice thing about that is then our, our Lambda API is very efficient. It's not trying to do all the hard matching. We did all the matching as we built that. And it's just kind of sharing back that um, that JSON document. So I would say you know, like the Lambda API Gateway Aurora S3 Scala is probably less than um, probably less than 5K a month that we're spending. Nice. It's a lot lower than I would have thought. How, how do you guys feel about privacy with data? And, and do you guys do anything about privacy? Because it's a big topic today with with all of the Facebook scandals and all that and marketers using everyone's data. So what do you guys, what's your stance on that? Yeah, I think privacy is very important. I think even it's even more so in the forefront, you know, now with, um, I think even last year with GDPR, we're a U.S. only focused company. So GDPR doesn't affect us. It's, but it's something we looked at. We're, you know, paying very close attention to what happened with the California Consumer Privacy Act. Um, so one thing that we do is we make sure that all the data that we buy or that we source, we have the ability to use for marketing purposes. So we want to make sure that we're only using ethically sourced data that we have access to use. So that's one piece. The other piece that we're really doing, um, we do today, but we're enhancing it just to kind of get ready for the, the California Act, is have a very robust opt-out process. So if you as a consumer want to opt out of our database, you're allowed to do that. So one of the things I'm doing is just making that easier and, and more automated on the back end process, but making making it possible for you as a consumer to come and see one of the things we're doing for the California Privacy Act. Really, what that is is wrapped into is the ability for you as a consumer to come and see what does a company like us have on you, and then being able to opt out of that and then suppress that from future marketing material. So, yeah, that's the process that we're we're building out now. I mean, today you can come to our website and opt out, and that certainly works, but we're probably we're downstream from most of what you're probably actually getting from a marketing standpoint. So we're for a lot of the the direct to consumer you know, marketing, we're a piece of of where they're getting that data. So if you opt out from us, it's not necessarily going to change your your direct life. But I think what we're trying to be really careful with is is compliance, making sure that we're following um, all those processes. Security is is probably is a huge focus as well. So I think one thing we've always done well and we're continuing to do well on the cloud is is making sure that we're securing all of our information using encryption or us following best practices. And I feel really good about that. We've always done really well on the data center. We've got really nice um, IPS and IDS to protect um, everything that we're doing there. But you know, doing similar things on the cloud, you know, we're working close with AWS around our whole new tech stack. And as we did a well-architected review with Amazon and they looked at everything we're doing, they're, they literally came back and said, this is the best architecture we've ever seen. And we truly don't have any recommendations on what you could do better. So that was that was nice to hear from, from AWS. You get a lot of letters from people saying you did the best job ever. <laughs> <laughs> John, tell us a little bit about um, what makes you so good at like, what you're doing. Because you're technical, but then you're also excited about leveraging the business side of things. And so you're like a very well-rounded um, 
like player, but you're not a jack of all trades. It doesn't sound like. So tell us more about what you do, or maybe some of the things you do on the side for fun to help you like be that. Yeah, you know, some of it. Yeah, you know, I think early on in my career, I probably was just more of a typical developer. I think, I think probably part of what changed that was going through the consulting experience. So being able to work more with companies and and being able to shift quickly from spending time with. Um, you know, AB and AMRO and then being on site at Schneider Electric and with Maytag and then working with, you know, high tech companies that were launching websites or portals, you know, seeing, I think, I think that whole consulting side probably helped a little bit of that, helped me understand more the business aspect of technology, where I was working closely with business leaders. Um, even early on at Model Metrics, I was very hands-on. So we would, um, you know, like the CEO and, and myself would go and gather, we'd help sell a deal, we'd write the statement of work, we go on site and configure Salesforce and then myself and my development team would build the integration or, you know, tie into their database. So I think I saw both sides of that through that, through that phase. So that was probably a little bit of a unique fact that I went from being a developer to um, also consulting and then kind of being that tech leader role on a consult consulting engagement probably helped me see the business side of that. I think um, on the personal front, you know, I think being intellectually curious is important. So I think, you know, one of the things I did, um, always was um, you just trying to stay involved in things. So I think that goes with starting like the AWS user groups, um, you know, giving back to the community, kind of helping them understand what I learned, you know, about the cloud. Because at the time, you know, when we launched that, and I think it was oh seven or oh eight, nobody in Chicago really knew what AWS was, and they're coming trying to figure it out. So helping explain to them what the cloud was, what we're doing, what you know, then what mobile was, went through that phase. So I think you know, being being engaged uh, with that has helped a lot, um, and then doing a lot of startup mentoring and helping you know, work with companies. I work with uh, the Junto Entrepreneurial Institute. So that's where I you know, knew Bill Furlong and some of the other guys that you've interviewed. So I think that's helped me stay in touch with that tech community as well. But you know, I think listening to podcasts and um, you're trying to, I think, have a high EQ. That's one thing I've certainly learned from you know, Ramachanda and Junto is that's one of the areas a lot of businesses fail is they, they're good at sale, selling or they have a good product or a good idea. But if you don't have a good EQ and you don't know how to work with the team and inspire people and work with people, it's going to be hard to be successful, whether it's you're running a department or running a team. Um, so I think that helped. And obviously, Salesforce had a pretty amazing um, you know, training curriculum. So I think as a leader there, I got to go through some interesting you know, workshops and um, offsites and um, you know, had, the, had the opportunity to have like offsites led by Jeffrey Moore. Um, and, and people like that, which you know, most people don't get access to. So being able to, to work directly with people like that was certainly unique. So it was you know, definitely a good experience. What about, um, so you mentioned EQ for everybody out there that's not familiar with that emotional intelligence, emotional quotient. Um, tell us your perspective on it and why it's so important. I think it's, um, it's important because it helps you relate to whether it's your employees or customers as people and understanding, being able to read a room or um, helping you, you hire people. I think that's one of the things that we've done here as well is kind of formalize what our vision, mission values are, and then being able to use that as part of our hiring process to make sure people are a good cultural fit. So I think EQ is really the ability to read someone, to be able to respond to them, um, understand what's going on behind the scenes because just if somebody's having a hard day or they didn't act well in a meeting, being able to you know, praise in public and, and um, you know, coach in private. So just, I think having, having some insight in terms of what makes people tick helps you be a better leader or just a better coworker uh, for people. I want to go back to something you said in, in the, the privacy answer. 
um, you said it's ethically sourced data, and I know it's a cool term because it you usually that term is ethically sourced like food or something. Um, so could you talk about that a little more? Like, is there something specific you guys look for? Have you ever turned down a data company because they're not ethically sourced? Yeah, I would say, I mean, it's probably nothing. I, you know, I think that's just a word that kind of came to me. It's not something we use in our marketing, but I think that's one of the things I like about what we do is, is, is we certainly, I would say I'm newer to the data industry. This is my first role kind of more in this space. Um, and so what I like about us is that, you know, if, if somebody approaches us and wants to sell us data that is something that we know that they acquired, you know, illegally or maybe through, you know, obviously there's been a lot of press about location data, for example. Um, if if you weren't aware that that weather app was gathering that location data, you know, it's nothing that we would want to take in or use to help, you know, kind of better market to you. So it's I think we always try to make sure that whoever, whether we're getting data publicly or buying data from a third party, that you know, they truly you know, you you opted in to share that data, and it's something that that's okay for them to share. It's not something that you know, they gathered um, they gathered you know kind of by by means other than what you would expect. How how has the Chicago tech scene been in your, from your perspective? Because you've been through it all. It sounds like you've been through the the dot com bubble burst, the the internet rebirth, and, and all that in Chicago. How how is Chicago tech looking to you today? I think I'm you know, very bullish on it. I think I've really seen. You going back into the you know the late '90s, early kind of dot com days, there wasn't a lot of Chicago tech other than you know, there was um, you know Motorola and some big companies were here. I think kind of the problem Chicago had is after Motor- Motorola kind of struggled or, or you know things changed, there weren't a lot of great companies that came out of that. Even though there's a lot of really sharp people, a lot of great minds, I think we as as a as a city have always had a little bit of an inferiority complex, and you know, people complain about it, it's harder to get funding here. I think I've seen it, you know, mature and grow. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of great tech leaders here, um, you know, that have kind of helped start a lot of companies. We've had a lot of good success stories. So I think, you know, Groupon and um, you know some of the other larger companies that have kind of um, you know, come out of Chicago have, have really kind of put us on the map. And I think, I think that that market's changed a lot. You know, there's a lot more. I would say like 10, 10 or fifteen years ago, it was really rare to be a tech startup here. Where I think it's a lot more common now. I think. You know, 1871 has helped a lot. ITA has helped a lot, and so I think, and there's a lot more funding you know, happening for companies here. So I think we, as a as a as a tech city, I think one of the things that we excel at is kind of B2B software. There's a lot of B2B companies here. I think we we do that pretty well. Um, you know, I think it would be, I think we're still a little bit on the early days. There's a lot of I think even as I was looking around at opportunities to leave Salesforce. Um, yeah, there's a few bigger companies like Groupon or Uptake that have done really well, but then there's a lot of small five or ten person companies. So I think we're we're at the point now where hopefully some of those you know startups kind of move into becoming you know more successful mid sized companies. I think that the path I've seen most of the small companies either fold or get acquired. You know, and obviously getting acquired is a good thing, but I would love to see you know more of them turn into to an Uptake or kind of a successful mid sized company. So. Tell us a little bit about what you do for fun on, on the side in your free time. Yeah, a lot of what I do is probably typical things in terms of, you know, I've got two daughters. I love spending you know, time with my family. Um, I have a golfer. I like to get out and play golf when I can. Um, you know, travel is one of my big hobbies. So, like, for example, one of the things we're actually doing for spring break is going to Abu Dhabi and then uh, Delhi and Agra. So we're 
we haven't been back to India for about four years, so it'll be fun to you know, take the kids through uh, the Taj Mahal, and then we're also going to spend some time in Abu Dhabi and go through the Grand Mosque. So, yeah, travel travel is definitely a passion of mine. My my wife kind of jokes that I'm a little bit like the Johnny Cash song that I've been everywhere. So I've been, and <laughs> <laughs> for I love it. I've had the the opportunity to be you know, be a lot of different places and a lot of unique places. Even you know, like a Salesforce did a lot of did some work in you know, Bogota, Colombia. Yeah, I've been mm-hmm. to Australia five or six times, a lot of time in Europe and Sydney. So, yeah, definitely, I haven't been everywhere, but I've, yeah, definitely. But, I, I but do, you have I enjoy a lot of stamps travel. in your passport. I do. I'm actually <laughs> running out of pages, so I might need to get a new passport before too. That's awesome. That's Coast, a sign of Costa Rica. Right they still stamp you. A lot of countries they don't anymore. That's but, really that's cool. But, what um do you have any routine that you follow daily, um that you abide by? I think for me. Um, I think if, I don't probably have an exact routine. I think one of the things that's probably a little bit unique about me is 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 you know kind of cracking your code. I think is a is a term my wife's used that it's important to understand what's what's your code and how do you um, how do you make yourself successful. One thing is that's important for me is sleep. So you know I definitely make sure that I'm actually you know, sleeping every night. Where I know a lot of people sleep four or five hours. Like for me, I, I function better if I have you know eight hours of sleep. So I try to prioritize that. Um, yeah, I try to I try to stay active and and exercise. Um, and then I think when I come to work too, one of the things I've learned is I don't, I can't multitask. I think people that multitask fail. I think it's something I used to try to do well, but it basically meant I wasn't paying attention to whatever meeting I was in. So I try to you know, not check email or Slack, you know, first thing in the morning, um, when I drive to work, I, I don't have the radio on. It kind of varies. Sometimes I'm really interested in pod, in a podcast or an audio book. So I'm listening to that. But a lot of times I like to just mentally think about you know, what am I facing today? What are my priorities? What do I want to accomplish? Try to get that in my head before I'm just responding to emails and kind of living in the urgent. Um, and then when I'm in meetings, I try to um, you know, truly spend time in those meetings. I try to do one-on-ones with each of my direct reports every week. I think the challenge is then that's all, all good, but I think the challenge is trying to, the other thing I've, I've been doing more of is blocking off kind of think time throughout the day where I truly try to protect that, where I'm spending some time, you know, doing industry research or trying to block off some time even to, you know, catch up on emails and things like that. Because the downside of, of being fully present in meetings is then you're behind on emails. So you ha- you do have to find time to try to do that. But I think, I think one of the ways that I've been successful and people like working for me and I've had some pretty loyal employees that have followed me from companies is, it's truly trying to delegate. So I try to empower people to you know, run their team or run their group or do whatever it is and to kind of stay out of their way. So I think one of the things I brought from Salesforce here is kind of the, the V2Mom philosophy, which is kind of vision, values, um, uh, methods, obstacles, and metrics. And using that, so our, our company is now running on that framework. And that's helped that helped me at Salesforce and it's helped me here as well. So I'm checking up on my team, but it's kind of a trust, but verify. So I'm not micromanaging them. So I don't have to be in their business. And as long as I know where they're aligned and we've got, you know, that's one of the things that the release planning has helped is make sure that, you know, my longer term vision is being executed. I don't have to be in every meeting, every, every, every retro, et cetera. So, so those are a few things, I guess, that kind of popped to mind. So if anybody listening wants to find out more about you or in future, where would we go? Uh, probably the best thing is um, either, either come to our website in or, you know, I do try to post a lot of articles on LinkedIn and, um, things about me. I'm not as active on Twitter as I probably should be, but LinkedIn is probably the best way to, to find me and kind of hear what I'm up to. So. Cool. Well, John, thanks so much for, for being on the show. This was awesome. You're welcome. I, was, I enjoyed the conversation. Was. 
Thanks, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with John. If you haven't yet, just a reminder, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're using. It really helps us out so we know who's listening and, and what you guys like and what you don't like. So please hit the subscribe button, share the podcast with your friends, coworkers, whoever. Uh, each week we're going to try to bring an awesome tech Chicago leader and talk with them about what they're up to. So uh, hit subscribe and stay tuned. We'll have a lot more conversations coming up. 